Hello and welcome to the Trinity SMF podcast with me, Will O'Callaghan. On this podcast, I speak to leaders in the world of finance, business and technology to get more of an insight into how we students can discover the industry that we wish to pursue a career in. My guest today is Alison Mass. Alison is chairman of the investment banking division at Goldman Sachs. She is a member of the management committee and investment banking executive committee. Previously, she was global head of the financial and strategic investors group in the investment banking division. Before that, Alison was co-head of the financial and strategic investors group in the Americas. She joined Goldman Sachs as a partner in 2001. Prior to joining Goldman Sachs, Alison worked at Merrill Lynch and held several senior management positions in the securities and investment banking areas. And before that, she worked at Drexel Burnham. Alison is a member of the board of advisors of Launch with GS, Goldman Sachs's $500 million commitment to invest in companies and investment managers with diverse leadership. And she also serves as a member of the New York University Stern Executive Board. Alison, welcome to the Trinity SMF podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I'm very curious to know how you developed your initial interest in finance and in particular investment banking when you were growing up. So I actually came out of business school at age 22. So I didn't have any full-time work experience when I came into investment banking. So unlike this generation, I would say, of professionals coming into our industry who have a summer experience or some of our MBAs have had two to four years of work experience before they go to business school and come to banking. Um, I was young and literally didn't really have a view of what investment banking was. I knew I liked business. Um, my mother had had a retail business. That's literally a store where she sold things, you know, antiques. So I understood the business world a little bit and I was in a business university at Stern and I was majoring in accounting and uh, got my MBA in finance. But I really didn't know the difference between a commercial banker, an investment banker, you know, what a salesman, a trader on Wall Street was. What I did was take the opportunity since I was in New York City to interview with everyone. So it was sort of the center of business in the U.S., and um, I just interviewed with everyone I could. And the people who did investment banking seemed to have the broadest uh, seat at the table, if you were. And since I didn't know what I wanted to do, I just thought that'd be a great place to start. And I always like to sit, tell this story that I don't think I made a mature, well thought out decision to come into banking. When I got out of business school, and as I said, I was 22, I had two different job offers. One with accounting firms um, that wanted to pay me $24,000 a year and one path with investment banks that wanted to pay me $36,000 a year. And that was a simple decision for me since I had student debt. And I was like, I'm not sure I know what an investment banker is, but if someone's willing to pay me $36,000 a year, I think I'm going to go that path. So you know, I can't say that I made a mature, well thought out decision, but I always knew I liked the business world. And I just got really lucky because from the day I got into this industry, uh, I love it. Excellent. And could you tell us then how you navigated your career from Drexel Burnham to joining Goldman Sachs and then ultimately becoming 
chairman of the investment banking division. So it's been a long path. Actually, this August will be 40 years since I started, August 10th, 1981, and I'll never forget the date. So Drexel was a middle market firm and back then really just focused on the high yield market. And back then they were called junk bonds. Now it's become obviously a very important part of the capital markets. But I spent nine years there and I worked for a lot of the private equity firms that were just evolving in the 80s. And um, Drexel was a firm that um, went out of business, for those of you who are Wall Street historians, um, in 1990. So literally, it was a liquidity problem the firm had. And 5,000 people all were out of work on the same day. And we all had to find sort of a new role. I had co-managed a lot of business with other investment banks. So when Drexel went out of business, I had a number of opportunities to go other places. And I chose to go to Merrill Lynch at the time, before it was called Bank of America Merrill Lynch. And I was there for 11 years. But I always say that was not a job change I made proactively. My firm went out of business and I had to find another job. Um, so I've only changed jobs really once, which was to leave Merrill Lynch to come to Goldman Sachs in 2001. And for me, that decision was based on relationships that I had at Goldman and candidly in our industry, in the investment banking industry, Goldman was always the gold standard to me. And I always competing against Goldman. And, you know, I had so many friends at Goldman. My brother worked here. Um, so I always had a relationship with the firm. And when it was the right time for me and the right time for Goldman, uh, they had tried to recruit me for many years before I came here. I just made the move. But what I like to say is that I've had the same clients the whole time I've been in business. I mentioned that in the 80s, I covered private equity firms and clients like KKR and people like Henry Kravis and George Roberts, I met them in 1983, literally, and they're still clients of mine today. I spoke to George Roberts yesterday. So I've, I've had one job. I've just had it at three different firms. And as I've grown in my career and really tried to have broad client relationships, there was a natural time for me to sort of pass the baton to the next gen running my business day to day. And so I was um, very privileged to be elevated to chairman of banking um, about a little over a year ago. Fantastic. That's a fascinating story. And investment banking is said to be one of the most challenging careers in finance. And you have had 40 successful years in the industry. What are the factors that have contributed to your success, do you think? You know, people always ask me this question because there are very few people my age that stay in the industry. It's a young person's industry. And, you know, so I've had to really think about that. And I, I think there are uh, three things, I would say, that contribute to my longevity in the business. One, and really importantly, is that I've kept my interests outside of work. Like if all I did was work all the time, I would absolutely have burned out earlier in my career or you know, not had the sort of joy that I have every day coming into the office and working with the clients I work with. So whether it's skiing, whether it's the arts, whether it's working out, whether it's spending time with my family, whatever my interests are, um, I've always managed to keep them. Even as a junior banker, I remember I loved the ballet. I don't dance myself, but I love, you know, going to see the New York City Ballet. 
And my brother and I used to share a subscription, which was expensive at the time for us, but we shared it. So we bought two seats and split it. And it was literally like eight forced cultural nights for us, you know, literally that, um, you know, I didn't get to all of them because sometimes I had to work, but like eight times a year I had to go. Um, and cause I had paid for this. And um, that was my way of sort of keeping my interest at that time, even in the context that I was a junior banker. So that's number one, just keep, I've kept my interest outside of work the entire time. So I've had a little bit of that balance. Um, second, I think I just got, as I said earlier, I, I got lucky. I found something I truly love. And I think that's one of the things that I would say to all of you, which is use your summers, use your first couple of years outside of university to try different things. And if you don't enjoy it for the summer, guess what? You're not gonna like it full time. You know, it's not like, oh, I wasn't sure about that. And, uh, but you know what, I'm gonna give it a go. Don't, if you don't enjoy going to work every day during the summer, you're not gonna enjoy it full time. So you have to really figure out something that you love. Is it the analytical challenge? Is it being in the markets? Is it the service aspect? Is it the client side? Is it the structuring? Like, what is it that really you enjoy? And I think you have to guide yourself towards that. So, I mean, it's easy to say and harder to do, but you know, you know, the same way that you know which classes you look forward to being in and what professors you like to engage with. And that's the same way you're gonna feel about your, your work. And then the third thing is investing in relationships. That to me is sort of the spice of life, just learning about different people and where they came from and their interests and their families and their upbringings and backgrounds. And I just find, I find myself a student of people and I enjoy building relationships. And that is part of why I stay in the industry, the relationships I have with my colleagues, the relationships I have with my clients. It's fantastic to get that insight. Thanks a million, Alison. And in your role advising corporate and private equity clients, such as KKR, as you mentioned, what are the key skills you have developed to be one of the most successful advisors today? Well, I think one of the, I mean, I'm sure you always hear this, but I think one of the most important things is to listen well. And someone once said to me, you never learn anything when you're talking. And it was one of those simple messages. And I was like, you know, that's actually true, right? So when I go into meetings and I meet new clients or I'm in any client meeting, I spend a lot of time letting my client talk and listening to them. And it's amazing. People will tell you everything if you just listen. And I've had clients ask me to switch up the team that works with them at Goldman and I've asked them why and they say so-and-so doesn't listen to us. He or she walks into a meeting and they just talk at us, present an idea, present a new structure. And it's really an important skill. So listening is critical. Um, second is, I always say, you know, you have to know when you earn the right to ask for the order from a client it takes time. It takes time to develop that, you know, you invest, invest, invest. And then all of a sudden, you know what, you've earned that right. But when you have earned that right, you have to ask for the order. And I think I have a very good sixth sense of when it's time to do that. 
And I have a very genuine way of speaking to clients when I say, you know what, we have been side by side with you for some period of time. You know, we talked about advising you on X or Y, and I think it's our time. I think it's our time. And I think we can, you know, add the most value to what you're doing. And I think if you, if you truly have earned that right, clients want to do business with people they like and people they trust. And that's really important to build that up um, over time. And building trust and building a personal relationship is really key. And part of that is, and the last thing I'll say is losing with grace. And you're not going to win every piece of business. And how you react to that impacts a client wanting to hire you again. I had a very big client um, who I have a very 10-year relationship with decide two weeks ago to do their first SPAC. And they did it with someone other than us, other than me. And when I called, I said, congratulations, that I think it's a great strategy for them. And I was curious why they chose to go with firm X or firm Y. And they told me why. And I told them that, you know, we had a differentiated perspective on some structure or I I said, so perhaps on your second SPAC, we can work together um, and I'd love to introduce our people, whatever. And then literally a week later, he called me and he said, you know what? I got like 10 calls from bankers on the streets that we didn't do this deal with. And you were the only one that had that reaction. Everyone else was like angry. How could you? I'm not spending any time with you anymore because you're wasting my time. Like literally, he said, so guess who I want to do my next back with? You. So losing with grace is really important. Um, And those are some of my, you know, that's some of the advice I would say in terms of building really important, longstanding client relationships. As I said, people like to do business with people they like and people they trust. Could you talk a bit more about how you've been able to balance your work with your interests outside of work, as you mentioned earlier? Well, you know, something I think about a lot and it becomes more challenging the older you get. When you're starting out, it's really just about you. And then, you know, during your 20s, most of us find sort of a partner and then you have to be concerned about that dynamic. Many of us choose to have children. That's like a third dimension. Um, And then of course you have, you know, your friends and your family and your interests outside of work, your recreation. Some people have their religion. There are all these competing things. And I did get to a point probably about 12 years into work where I was married, I did have children and I was completely stressed every day. And I thought I was just doing a bad job everywhere. I was doing a bad job at work. I was a bad mom. I was a bad wife. I was a bad daughter. I was a bad sister. Um, And like, I never saw my friends. I wasn't working out. It was just, I was in a bad place. And I just got myself to a place that I said, I cannot be an A plus at everything every day. Because for those of us who are type A, you know, and think about it in school, when you're not, you can't understand a topic or you're not doing that well, you just study harder, right? You just study harder. You go to the professor, you read more, you, you know, get a TA, you just, you work harder and then you can achieve what you want. That doesn't work when you have 10 competing demands on your time because there are only 24 hours in a day. So I got to this point where I said, I got to have a weighted average week. Like literally, 
a weighted average cost of capital that you learn in business school, a weighted average week. And I can't be an A plus at everything every day, but I can on average over a week be an A. So I had to proactively manage my weeks so that on a day where, you know, there could be a four day period I was in Asia visiting clients. I was an A plus banker those four days, but I was certainly not an A plus wife or an A plus mom or an A plus friend. But I also probably went to the gym every day because I had time. So I was in a hotel in the middle of Asia. But I made sure that the day I came back, I worked from home, took my children to school, picked them up at school, and maybe went out to dinner with my husband to reconnect with him one-on-one -on -one that evening. So that day I was probably an A-plus mom and an A-plus wife, but maybe I wasn't an A-plus banker, right? I was, you know, took time to do some personal stuff. I just sort of got to a point where I proactively managed my week so that on balance, every week I can be an A. And I just literally would put time in my calendar, call your mom. I put, you know, I'd literally have time in my calendar to call my husband. And I would have time where I would, days in the week where I would take my children and drop them off at school, which always brought them joy and candidly brought me joy. So if you proactively manage it, you can on average over a week be an A. You just have to give up the concept that you're going to be an A plus at everything every day. You mentioned find a career that you love. For students, it can be difficult to know what career they want to pursue on leaving university. So what advice would you give to students to help them navigate their way into a career they are passionate about? Well, first of all, I think it's really important to try different things and use your summers to do that. And, you know, your first job out of university. A lot of people spend a year or two and decide that they want to pivot, you know, five degrees left, five degrees right. Um, and that's okay. It's okay not to find, you know, the first job that you have be the job that you're in 10 years later. Um, but one thing I find every summer when I talk to our summer interns at Goldman is like, you're all at this fantastic university. You all came from great high schools. I'm sure you have tremendous academic success and you probably come from families that are high achieving families. And you always think like the next thing is, oh, I should go to Goldman Sachs or I should go to investment bank because that's like the next thing that high achievers do. But you've got to make sure that this is your dream, not your parents' dream. And that it truly brings you joy and happiness. And that's something that's very hard to do. Uh, but it's literally, if you do something you love, you're going to be better at it. Just the way it is. And every summer I give that speech to our summer interns and inevitably there are four or five people who get on my calendar afterwards and they're like, that's me. I really don't want to do this, but my parents told me that I should do this because my dad's a doctor and he always said I should have been a banker or, you know, they, they always have a story about why they're in investment banking. And oftentimes it has nothing to do with a passion they have. It's their parents. And look, your twenties are that age, right? Where you're supposed to figure out who you are separate from your parental unit um, and your immediate family unit. And it's hard. And the, your job is part of that. Like your job and figuring out what career you want um, is part of that journey. So I would say, uh, make sure that on Sunday nights, you can't wait to get up and go to work in the morning Monday, as opposed to dreading 
like, oh my God, I got to go do this again tomorrow. You, you'll know the feeling. They're fantastic points. And no, thank you for that insight. And what characteristics do you look for in young professionals at Goldman Sachs today? Well, if you look at our website and look at our uh, recruiting materials, you'll see that, you know, we are committed to excellence in everything we do for our clients. So therefore, we expect our young professionals to also focus on really being excellent at what they do. And that means attention to detail. That means being really inquisitive and asking clarifying questions, right? I think the best young professionals will come back and say, you know, Allison, you asked me to do X or Y, but I really, I really didn't understand that. Or do you really mean X or do you really mean Y? And is this what you're thinking? Like, it's okay to ask clarifying questions. I often find that the most successful young professionals know what they know and they know what they don't know as importantly. They might say to me, I don't really understand how this security works or uh, could you explain to me why this is important to the client? And I just find that intellectual curiosity a really important trait. Um, As I said, attention to detail is critical when you're a junior banker. And I always said, rather you do less work, but do it well, than try and do 10 assignments and do every one of them with cutting corners. That would not work for us or our clients. Um, Goldman has a culture of being all in. So that doesn't mean that we don't want you to take time and have your interests outside of work and your family and your recreation. But uh, we have a very um, highly communicative culture. So uh, when somebody sends you an email and asks you something, the culture here is to respond, I'm on it, got it. You know, I received, understood. Um, and, then, and then also come back with clarifying questions. You know, when is it you need this? Or is this something that I can get you Monday? Or it's just a very, it's sort of a very communicative 24 seven culture. And uh, that's part of how, you know, how junior bankers are, are uh, evaluated. Um, communication skills are really important, verbal uh, and written. And, you know, you're going to learn a lot of that in school. I remember getting out of university and coming to business and I was writing long-winded things and memos because, you know, my teachers were like expository writing and I need more color. I need to feel it. I need to smell it. You know, whatever your English teachers are telling you, but in business, it's like bullet points, get to the point. And so there's a little bit of a science to it, uh, but you learn it on the job. And that's what the first couple of years are for. And then lastly, I would say real team orientation. Goldman is not a place that's all about I, I, I. It's about we, we, we. And um, people really help each other out. And you hear about collaboration and teamwork, but it really is true at, at the firm. So those are some of the key traits that we look for in our junior professionals. And you have mentioned in the past how you present yourself matters. What advice would you give your younger self and the best ways to develop these necessary skills? Well, I would say two ways. One, the most helpful course I ever took in undergraduate um, school was not any of my business courses. It was my public speaking course. So I would say to all of you, if you haven't done that, go take a public speaking course. Force yourself to make speeches and presentations on random topics to random groups of people. 
it is the most useful thing that I did in college. So public speaking skills and how you look and present yourself and how you stand and how you, you know, your voice goes up and your voice goes down and how loud you are and how you sit forward and just command a room really matters. And it's, it's really interesting. We have incredibly bright young professionals and some of them speak very quietly, don't speak up in meetings, uh, get nervous public speaking, and it's all learned. None of us are born great public speakers. None of us. It's all, you know, you see these senior people are like, oh my God, he's such a great leader, such a great speaker. She's such a great presenter. We're not, none of us are born that way. We all learn and we teach ourselves. So that is number one. I would definitely do that. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, look up, look up, uh, be aware of your surroundings and the people around you because there are great role models. And one of the things that is uh, great about our industry, I would say, is that it's not a corporation where you're one person who works for one person who works for one person who works for one person. It's very flat. So you'll work on a bunch of deal teams and you'll probably, the good news and bad news is you work for everybody. So you could have literally 40 people that you work for on your deal teams, but every one of them has a different style. Every one of them has a different communication style, way of negotiating, way of communicating. And that's okay because you need all types to make the the firm whole, I truly believe there is not one right role model for anyone. There is not one person that you're gonna meet in your life and say, oh, I wanna grow up and be him or her. What you are going to do is say, wow, like I love the way he dealt with this, or I love the way she said that, or I love the way she managed through this difficult situation. And you take a little bit from everyone to sort of develop yourself into a professional. So that's, you know, to me, how you present yourself. Um, You're going to observe other professionals and decide what's comfortable for you. Don't try and be anyone else, be you, but the best you can be. Brilliant. That's fantastic advice. And thanks for sharing that. I'm sure the students will really appreciate it. And I would like to touch on the current financial markets for a moment. Could you take us back to the beginning of the pandemic and Tell us how you helped clients react to opportunities. Well, in the beginning of the pandemic, which is literally almost a year ago now, the focus from our clients was on liquidity, liquidity, and liquidity. I think there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of our clients' businesses completely shut down, right? Travel businesses, hotel businesses, transportation businesses, and all of these businesses were capitalized for environments that weren't, you know, literally where people had to stay home and could not travel. So that was an unusual, it was just very unusual. And when you do downside cases in business, right? A lot of our clients said, you know, you have a base case, you have an upside case and you have a downside case. Downside case was always like down 20%, down 20, wasn't down a hundred percent. Like, okay, let's just assume business shuts off and nobody goes on a cruise or nobody goes on an airplane. Like those scenarios were not in the analysis of our clients. So we spent the first, I would say 90 days focused on liquidity and making sure that clients 
um, who had businesses that we knew would recover post-pandemic um, had could get through that period of time. So liquidity, I would say, was the first focus for everyone, and we spent a long time on that. The second thing I would say is then clients started focusing on therefore what what are the what's going to happen post pandemic and so uh, and you mentioned earlier that you saw a couple of the interviews that I did on insights with great investors so we actually talked to all of our clients and that's one of the things in a crisis you have to be proactive and pick up the phone and talk to your clients and the more you talk to them the more they were trying to sift through what was going to come out of the other end of this pandemic unscathed, what was going to be accelerated and what industries perhaps might change forever. And I think most people felt that digitization uh, was going to accelerate, right? E-commerce, FinTech was going to accelerate. So all of a sudden their mind changed from liquidity of my current businesses and portfolio to, okay, where should I be investing? Uh, moving forward. And, you know, an anecdote I use is that my dad's 94. And for the last 10 years, I've been trying to get him to do as a banking online. And his financial private wealth managers have been asking me because I try and help him move from going to pick up his interest check every month and walking it over to his bank and depositing it. And I said, and I've been trying, my dad's like, no, this is what I do. This is my activity. I pick up my check. I walk to the other bank. I deposit. I like to feel my money. So literally March, whatever, 2020, the world shuts down and my dad's bank is closed. Both his banks are closed and he has to go online. He has to have money transferred online. And so it just like happened. Like this whole generation of people had to do online banking. Had, you know, so it just changed the world forever. Now, is he going to go back to going and picking up his interest from his, you know, investment account and carry it over to his more? No, there's no way he's going to go back to that. So there were certain things that were like permanently changed and certain things that will come back. People are going to travel again. They are going to take cruises, those kinds of things. So clients started focusing on that sort of as the second course of action. Um, and I would say, you know, I didn't mention people, but all of our clients were focused on their people first, safety, health of their people. So there were a ton of discussions about testing our people back to office, how we were doing it. One of the things Goldman Sachs does is we share a lot of our best practices with clients and they were very interested. What are you doing in France? What are you doing in Germany? What are you doing in Hong Kong? You know, and we've had second waves. And so we've really, we've really helped. And this is one of those areas where everyone works together. You know, there's no competition. Banks, we, we collaborate on stuff. There are certain things people collaborate on. You know, I would say cybersecurity. All the banks talk to each other because we all try, you know, there are these, you know, cyber threats that come into the banking industry. And that's a place where Citibank and Bank of America and Goldman, we all work together to protect our industry. Uh, this kind of pandemic was the same thing with respect to health of our people around the world. So a lot of collaboration about health, testing people, return to office, safely getting people to and from work, um, protocols, you know, are you going to pay for Ubers? Are you going to, you know, there are some clients who won't let their 
professionals go on public transportation. So um, I would say those were the discussions that we, we've had. I mean, it's been almost, it's been 11 months, so it's evolved. Excellent. And last year was a banner year for SPACs, which were once an outlier of capital markets. What do you think are the factors that contributed to the increased volume of SPACs? And do you think the current trend is sustainable? Well, I mean, as you think about it, with rates incredibly low, with equity markets really strong, and the massive amount of liquidity that the Fed and all the central banks have pumped into the markets, uh, it makes sense that we've seen sort of exponential growth of these vehicles. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with SPAC, just it's simply a publicly registered traded company that parks cash in a trust that invests in US treasuries for up to two years. The way it works is 2% of the capital comes from the sponsor and 98% comes from investors. And if the sponsor doesn't find a deal, the IPO investors get their cash back plus a US treasury return. And if the sponsor finds a deal that the investors don't like, uh, you can redeem uh, your cash plus US treasury return. So it's literally almost like a money market fund um, with a warrant upside because they also get warrants. So that's just a little bit of background on SPACs. But I do think they're here to stay. I don't know that they're here to stay in as broad a way as they are today. I think there will be some sort of a flight to quality at some point because all of these SPACs, and I'll give you some stats, um, they have to de-SPAC. They have to find a company to buy. And that's why we're really focused on them. They're having an outsized impact on both the equity league tables and the merger league tables. Mergers are at the core of who we are uh, at Goldman. And um, just to give you some stats, streetwide global SPAC pricings this year, and it's only the end of February, 160 SPACs have been priced, $43 billion versus last year, year to date, this time last year, there were nine for $3 billion. Um, and in backlog, there's 150 SPACs on file publicly with another $40 billion that's going to be raised. And over 90 of those were filed in the last two to three weeks. So it's just the velocity is, is increasing. But I mentioned the merger league tables because these SPACs are all deep SPACing and buying assets um, year to date. Um, SPAC mergers represent 30% of M&A. That's extraordinary and unprecedented. So we have to focus on SPAC. So do I think they're here to stay? Yes. Um, do I think that there will be as many? Probably not. And I think there'll probably be a flight to quality at some point. ESG is also a very topical and important subject today. Could you talk about how companies and clients are incorporating ESG into their strategies today? Well, this is something we've been thinking about for a really long time. And, you know, it's not just the, the right thing to do. There's a clear business case, right, for ESG. And I would say of the E, S, and G, um, you know, environmental sustainability is the investment theme of the next decade, uh, regardless of a client's interest in ESG. To me, the sustainability revolution is going to have the same scale as the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. So, you know, you ask how do companies do ESG? Um, just, you know, a couple of examples. 
they adapt their business models. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. You know, Amazon, it's moving from a little over 40% renewable power in 2019 to 100% by 2025. Um, and that's significant, right? Given Amazon's dominance um, of the cloud um, and they use power hungry servers. Um, they also bought over 100,000 electric vehicles, vans, right, for deliveries from a startup, I think it was called Rivian, an electric vehicle company that's helping them scale up. So that's one kind of thing that companies are doing. Second, often goes beyond their own activities. And I'll use Apple as an example. They've targeted carbon neutrality for their entire value chain by 2030. So that means their suppliers, that means their manufacturing partners, shipping to recycling of products to the end of their life. And so they're driving the whole ecosystem towards sustainability. And like, who doesn't want to work with Apple, right? So that's how companies are incorporating it. And it's, look, it's driving fund uh, flows and performance as well. One stat I'll give you is that ESG funds um, attracted almost $200 billion of client inflows last year. And just compare that to almost 200 billion of outflows for mutual funds overall. So people are just pouring money into this asset class. And then of course, there's all the social issues of board diversity, et cetera, which you know, I'm not even you know, talking about because environmental sustainability candidly, as I said, is the investment theme. Excellent. And just before we finish up, I'd like to finish with a lightning round. So I ask four questions and you can say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So firstly, what are some of the industries you are most excited about for the future? Logistics, uh, real estate, uh, infrastructure. You know, you saw what happened in the United States this week uh, with the weather in, in Texas and their fragile infrastructure, um, healthcare and technology. What is the best book you read? In my whole life? Um, I would say as an adult, uh, one of the most beautifully written books I read is called Where the Crawdads Sing. And it was 2018. And it was, it was a book about a coming of age. Um, and it was about nature. But I have to say it was just beautifully written. And as someone who has to read research reports all day and the Wall Street Journal and it just to, to read something that was so well-written was a treat. My favorite children's book, which I read my, my kids, um, was The Giving Tree by Shaw Silverstein, which I think has a lot of life lessons. That was always my favorite book to read, though. What is the best life decision you have made? Oh, by far having children. No question. It is like, you know, people talk about how many deals you do or you know, the greatest client experience, whatever, but you know, that's my legacy. And finally, what is the highlight of your career to date? Well, I would say that I always say I look at it internally and externally, like internally, for sure, being on the management committee of Goldman Sachs uh, is without a doubt a career highlight to be at the table where we are shaping the future of, in my view, the best financial services franchise in the world. Um, is a privilege. So that is without a doubt my highlight internally. Um, externally, and I mentioned this 
earlier, the lifelong friendships that I've made with my clients. It's my business relationships have just led to tremendous lifelong friendships. Brilliant. Well, we've come to the end of the podcast, Alison, and thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed learning about your story and your fantastic advice for us students. Well, thanks, Will. This was a great interview and uh, good luck and good luck to everyone who's listening. You have been listening to me, Will O'Callaghan, on the Trinity SMF podcast. You can find more of this podcast at our website, www.trinitysmf.com. Please follow us on social media to find out more about upcoming events, podcast releases, and much more.